0: Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plant with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapstner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to the till.
1: Hello, gentlemen. Carmen? So um, we sometimes start off by asking, sort of like, what's nagging Nat? But I thought, Peter, maybe we would, yeah, I know, maybe we would start (laughs) today um, by instead asking you, hey, what is something that you learned? About the kingdom this week,
2: yeah, it was a. Um, I was at a church, and I, and I love this idea just to do something shortly like this because um, it speaks that we're all lifelong learners, right? We're not just the experts on on the kingdom as if we can, you know, get all the dimensions of it in a lifetime or twenty lifetimes. So I was at a church this Wednesday talking with the pastor, and uh, and the reason why I was there is just to kind of work through some different dimensions of sexuality with the high school students, and uh, and talked through over four weeks, you know, what is the difference in healthy sexuality according to our culture versus what we see in God's kingdom. And the pastor said something that really got my attention. He said, you know, over the last how many of our years, I don't remember how long he said it, but we've sort of as a church uh, gone from what he called and, and as a, a Latin term that uh, is in a lot of churches where he said we've, we've gone from sola scriptura, or meaning scripture alone, one of sort of the key tenets or premises of the protestant reformation where we really look at the scriptures to help define our understanding of kingdom life and know what's true and good and right in god's kingdom he said we've changed that from sola scriptura to sola experientia which isn't really actually a phrase but what he meant by that was that we're really much more so leaning into our experiences these days to help define what is right and good and true and so uh, the bible we can kind of cast aside but What we have happening in our friendships, what we have happening in our social media feeds, what we have happening just sort of in daily life, really define what we think is is true. And so he was making the point that at least in terms of sexuality, we're starting to create ideas of wholeness and sexuality according to our own image and our own ideas, sola experiencia, as opposed to saying what do the scriptures teach and how can I increasingly find myself in alignment with that? So I just thought it was not a huge thing, but I thought it kind of captured the spirit of the age a bit this week and saying really experience has replaced scripture as the primary teacher. So I don't know if you see some of that as well, but it got my attention this week.
0: No, that's fair. And and I guess I have one question then. Would that not sort of transcend through different ages though, where the Bible isn't always, or the Scriptures isn't always being used as the main reference points in expression of sexuality. Like I realize that it's probably maybe a little more prevalent now than in the past, but I, I imagine other ages would have looked elsewhere experientially as well. No?
2: Yeah. Well, I think you you bring up a good point there because maybe for a different episode sometime, I find it fascinating that for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, the Bible was not easily or readily accessible to the masses, and even even only just a few. So what did they lean into in terms of understanding God's kingdom? And there was a lot of corruption in a lot of those times, but I think at its best, it was people living out community that Mm. continued to tell the stories and continued to pass down what sort of the rightly ordered ways of God's kingdom might be. And so in, in a time where we don't have the community passing down the stories the way that we used to, I think we see maybe experience being the biggest teacher and experience is supposed to be a teacher, of course, but I think when we divorce it from maybe the community stories and the community ideas or scripture, some of the church tradition, some of those things, I think that's where maybe we find ourselves today.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think a part of that is that we have moved away from life on life discipleship models. We have moved away from catechesis. We have moved away from, uh, the 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 faith lived as a part of a community of believers, and we have made it a very individualistic, um, mm-hmm. personal pursuit. Yeah. And so, if you were to look back in, uh, in, you know, in the in the emerging generations of the church, the you know the very f- sort of the first time around, you are talking about people who were not only living intentionally in proximity to one another, to which Peter has referred, but but you were. You're talking about people who had a uh, had an oral tradition of the scriptures as the spoken word uh, and would have been rehearsing that with one another and and would have been reading out loud these these letters that they were passing around to the various um, gatherings. And then those were being memorized and those were being repeated. And that provided sort of the early framework for catechetical instruction. I mean, if we look at what is recorded in Philippians chapter two, we're looking at some of the very earliest catechesis that we have available. And so then you look at the way catechesis was accomplished over the generations um, before the Bible was readily available, translated into languages that people could understand and, you know, and distributed via the printing press. So it's not just in the last few hundred years that the Bible has been available. It's just this is the first time it's been available in this way. Um, yeah. to the point where we we imagine that the pursuit of God is an individualistic and individualized experience. Everybody has their own Bible. They do their own Bible study. They have their own quiet time. They don't necessarily um, have a life-on-life discipling relationship with another person who is actually sort of in accountability with them to see whether or not their Christianity is actually aligned with what Christianity is, in fact.
0: So, it, yeah, go ahead now. So when we moved away and uh, and every, the Bible was sort of passed down to every common person, are you like, maybe in some of that, we lost the connection to an overall church that sort of helped guide and keep everyone together as a whole unit, sort of in community versus just making an individualistic pursuit of faith.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's,
2: yeah, I think that's really a big factor in this whole thing. And, and uh, Ashley, just in my class the other day, the students were talking about some of these things and they said, so how, how do we do something different with our lives? How do we begin to live in the kind of community that we're talking about here? How do we mm. understand ourselves as people in relationship like the ancient Jews would have as opposed to individuals that are segmented from one another? And honestly, I came up short. I, I don't know what suggestions you guys have. I'm like, well, do you buy up a neighborhood and all live in a commune together? Like, I mean, what, what are the <laughs> options? I don't have great solutions to this. I don't I I do think because I don't think you can assume that we can sort of stay on the hamster wheel of our lives as they are and expect something different to take shape in our lives unless there is some kind of change. But I I, honestly, I came up short in my class about suggestions about what to do about it.
1: Hmm. I do think that um, your idea of buying up a neighborhood and living in community is not a bad one. Um, I mean, if we look at places across the country where that is happening, it's not Christians who are doing it. Uh, It is Muslims. And they make sure that, you know, nobody even has a mortgage to pay, right? We all, we all jump in together and we, we buy houses and properties outright and we live in proximity to one another and we, uh, and we are in commerce with one another and we are educating our children together and we are worshiping together and we're changing the world. Like that is, that actually is the, the Muslim model. Um, and so when, when we think about, uh, the way that we would have to adapt, uh, transform our approach. Part of it uh, might be, I mean, here would just be one consideration for our listeners. When you graduate from college, is your expectation that you are going to intentionally live in community with other people or get your own apartment?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, it's get your own apartment for the most part. But Nat, is
0: that not true anymore? Well, no, I think that's, that's exactly the um, expectation and intention. But what about. Uh, Intentionally living in a community of people who don't share the your your same faith beliefs and stuff, right? Like living in a community of the rest of the world,
1: uh, absolutely as to a commune,
0: and, sort of. Yeah,
1: no. So I think that both are necessary. I think that if you think that at twenty you are um, you are a mature enough Christian to go and live in the context of people who are living in ways that are. Demonstrably contrary to uh God's revealed will in scripture you know you're probably putting yourself in a um in an unnecessarily uh temptation prone environment mm. um, and you are much more likely to be i mean you're 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 essentially saying I'm ready to be a missionary to the world at twenty. Yeah. Um, which is maybe possible, but you better think about it that way every single day and every single moment. And you better be praying Ephesians 6 like there is literally no tomorrow. Like, it, you can't live in the culture and not not expect to be affected by it. Um, right. It's yeah. hard to go to bars and not drink at some point. It's hard to go to raves and not grind and twerk. Right? I mean, it is.
0: Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm
1: just. I, I mean, am I wrong?
0: No, no, no. I
2: mean, I can safely say that I don't have enough dance in me to ever even grind and twerk if I wanted to. But, um, but, but I know what you're saying, Carmen, in the sense that uh, I, I just think that to try to live an isolated missional life is incredibly difficult, even for the most equipped and the wisest among us. I, I think to try to go do things on your own you develop blind spots and by the nature of a blind spot is you don't know it's a blind spot. And so pretty soon you develop them. You don't have people around you to help kind of see other directions and bring other gifts and other strategies in play. I I don't know what hope you really have. So it sounds like it's actually a pretty good, uh, pretty big topic we could get into for a whole episode of the till sometime. Mm -hmm. It was just an interesting week for me with a lot of implications. I know it caught my attention when he said, let's think about this solo experience kind of thing uh, about where we're living. Carmen, I know we love to deal with uh, some of the topics of the day here on the tail as well. And there was no shortage of some of those things in the headlines this week. So where are we headed for our main topic of the day?
1: (laughs) Okay, here's the buffet. And then we'll um, yeah. Okay, so on Monday night, we had the Iowa caucus. So that's still a total mess. Um, On Tuesday night, we had the State of the Union address. And there are certainly things from the State of the Union address that we could highlight. I think that the breaches of decorum. Uh, Nancy Pelosi publicly ripping up the speech over the president's shoulder at its conclusion um, probably is a standout moment in terms of uh, just an act of just sort of gross incivility, but also, you know, I think something she's, you know, passionate about. Wednesday, the Senate found the president not guilty of impeachable offenses as charged by the U.S. House of Representatives, and so that resulted in the president's acquittal. Uh, Mitt Romney's speech prior to the vote is probably the standout conversation for a lot of folks Um Earning him both a tremendous amount of um, accolades in in public, but I think that there are also a number of criticisms being raised, and so that that makes for interesting conversation. Like, when do I, when do I take an act of moral courage, and what does it mean for my conscience to be bound only by Christ and not by public opinion or by party? On Thursday, we had the national prayer breakfast. The optics of that were pretty extraordinary as well. So mm, just yeah. from Tuesday night to Thursday night, we had, uh, you know, sort of a reversal of roles from the president being at the podium and Nancy Pelosi over his shoulder to Nancy Pelosi being at the podium praying and the president seated with his head bowed. Um, Arthur Brooks talked about the need to overcome contempt with love, loving our enemies uh, as Christ commands, and then the president responded unfavorably to that Um And then, uh, you know, so on and on. Uh, I think we could probably spend an hour talking about any of these. How about we just pick one? um, And and I'm going to pick the one that is literally going to go down in the history books, and that is related to the acquittal of the president of the United States of America of impeachable offenses. So what um, when you hear the word acquittal, let's just start there. When you hear the word acquittal, Nat, what comes to mind?
0: I feel like you're uh, sort of cut loose from the charges put against, you No, I guess I don't really know the dictionary definition, but to me, that seems like you're set free. Yeah. those Peter? are the words that I would use right off the, yeah,
2: right off the start. Carmen is that idea of, you know, I suppose not guilty. Uh, although you know, on some level you could remain guilty and yet be acquitted, uh, of the crime on some, on some way. But I think now your phrase, I, I wouldn't even couldn't think of how to add to it being cut loose or, or set free from the charges that are against you. So they're no longer relevant.
1: So because Nat asked sort of the dictionary (laughs) definition, it is it is a legal judgment that a person is not guilty of the crime with which the person has been charged. So it doesn't actually mean the person is not guilty of the charge. It means that in the judgment of a criminal court, that person has been found not guilty of the crime with which they have been charged.
2: Yeah,
1: it's not exoneration. Okay. Um it's not uh, you know, the charge is not expunged, I guess, uh, for those of us who have been alive long enough to remember, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Um, there was nothing about the trial related to O.J. Simpson that suggested even for a moment that he wasn't guilty. Oh, um, right. yeah. But he was acquitted because there was also not enough evidence to convict.
0: Oh, OK, that's fair. Hmm. Yeah. And and I
2: think, you know, so for the president to come out as he did and re-spin it in the way where he basically was suggesting that he has been totally exonerated, as you said, that there really, it was all bogus charges against him from the beginning. It it felt like, I mean, on both sides of it, right? Just to talk about it, not necessarily in the spiritual realm, but the political realm, it felt like one big political ploy for the base of the Democrats to go back to their voters and say, hey, look, we impeached the president, knowing all along that the Senate wasn't going to give uh, president Trump, you know, really any kind of reasonably fair look at the trial because it was already predetermined. Mitch, Mitch, McConnell said beforehand that they're going to be working in direct collaboration with the white house, uh, to get this sham in his mind done with as soon as possible. So for the president to come out and declare that he was exonerated completely when the whole thing reeked of politics on both sides of the aisle, uh, I would say that acquitted in the ways that maybe we could think about legitimate acquittals. uh, This felt like a whole sham to me. I don't know if it did to you, Carmen.
1: It's a, a, I would just, just a complicated mess. And so I think that the pivot that I would hope we could make today would be to get, um, to get ourselves and others thinking about conversations that we could have sort of go beyond the, the political show and ask some deeper questions. So, Peter, how about you and I, um, we, we say we, we put, um, our friend Nat, uh, he's going to stand accused. Oh, I like this. Yeah. Yeah. So we are going to, Nat is going to stand accused of being a Christian. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, So, and Nat's going to stand accused. We're going to accuse him of being a Christian. Um, and so in this scenario, who would the accuser be? Like who who when we talk about the, theologically and we talk about the person the the character who stands as the accuser in our yeah. in our lives ultimately who is that?
2: Well, it's Satan. His very name yeah. means accuser, and, and I, I think it's fascinating. In the Book of Job, for example, I, I've always wondered, like, how did Satan just have access, right, to the heavenly court? Then it's literally called the heavenly court that he walks into. And he walks in and his role, his very sort of essence as a being is to stand as the accuser of the brethren is sort of the language of the text. And so for sure, the, the primary being, I guess, in the universe who is the accusers is
1: Satan. OK, and so in this scenario, um, take us into that heavenly court. Who Who is the judge who sits in judgment?
2: Yeah, well, it'd be God, the father. Yep.
1: OK. And then what is the role of Jesus in this court?
2: Well, I, I mean, I would, I'd be hesitant to call him a lawyer, but I would suggest that there's sort of an intermediator here of, of some kind, a mediator between the accused and the, and the judge.
1: Okay. And then is there a role for the Holy Spirit in all of this?
2: Well, that's the funny thing, right? <laughs> is, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of confusion historically. You know what, Carmen, I'm going to send that back to you about <laughs> what you would say the role of the Holy Spirit would be in all of this.
1: <laughs> I'm going to go with the advocate.
2: Okay, I think that's fair. Oh, I'm going
1: to okay. go I'm going to go in this particular scene I'm going to go as the advocate. So, Okay. Um we we certainly have uh our friend Nat standing accused um of sin. But yeah. we but but Nat is claiming that he's a Christian. And so the accusation against him has ultimately been answered in the act of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Like that penalty has been paid. Right. He cannot he cannot stand accused any longer of the sin for which Christ died. And so the accusation now is that Nat is a Christian. Oh. W- what kind of evidence are you bringing, Nat? Maybe Peter, maybe you could bring some evidence on Nat's behalf. What kind of <laughs> evidence could be presented to prove that you're a Christian? I mean,
0: part so, of that would be Nat, my you lifestyle, right? Do you, want, do you want me to answer that one, Nat, for, for you? I mean, you're free to throw a comment in, but I mean, part of this would be my lifestyle, no? Right? Like it should demonstrate my life in the way that i live out on a day-to-day basis, no?
1: So you're not just bringing your beliefs, you're actually bringing some belief in action, presumably you're some my, behavior.
0: Presumably my belief would lead to a change in behavior. Yeah, hmm. i would hope.
1: All right, so Peter, you're um you now going to serve as a witness here. Um have you seen in our friend Nat evidence of being a christian? <laughs>
2: Well, uh,
0: speak wisely. I, the here.
2: context in which I I know Nat is uh, first as a student in a class over the uh, course of about three and a half months, but then also obviously outside of class in our ongoing and developing and working relationship. And so, in that, and uh, because I have a bias about Kingdom life being what you just described, Nat, where there is a synergy, there is a consistency between belief and action, and so I have spent way too much of my own journey at times being action only, but sort of being a zoo inside. And so it's, it's kind of like, do we have a consistency of the two? Mm, and mm-hmm. one area that I can say that I've seen in that for sure uh, was as we talked about different dimensions of God's kingdom in class, I, I watched both the earnestness with which you were taking notes, not so that you were going to spit back what I said about God's kingdom, but because you were trying to process and integrate and wonder about it, in light of God's kingdom because you care deeply at least it appeared to me outside looking in care deeply about wanting to live a life then that was consistent with God's kingdom and so it's one of the key things that I would bear witness on behalf of another is what what is sort of their authentic earnestness what is their desire their passion that gets manifested in a variety of ways and um uh, with, with the, I, I would be reticent to say these things out loud because it would be the pot calling the kettle black, but I certainly see a number of students that would maybe be on their social media feeds or be completely disinterested in anything that's going on in class. Uh, and, and only because I was once that student in my own life, there's there's no accusation there, but but I can see the earnestness among some students and you clearly were among them. And especially when you would come up and you would just regale me with, your questions and your notes and your unbelievably linear drawings and uh, and you and wrote it in font size two, I think somehow. So you had pages. You didn't even have pages of notes. You had one page of notes that was, it was the equivalent of like ten from other students. So, uh, so I'm going to bear witness that you did have behaviors associated with what I would consider to be a Christian.
1: Well, certainly um, a disciple pursuing. A knowledge of God and pursuing a life aligned with Him. And so I really wanted to introduce this as a, as an exercise in sort of what we expect of one another, what we allow others to see in our lives. And then maybe just invite listeners to like actually consider if you were put on the stand, if you were accused of being a Christian or not being a Christian, whichever, whichever way the accusation might go. Um, how, how do you, I mean, what, who, who would you call as witnesses? Yeah. Who would the prosecution mm-hmm. call as witnesses? Who would the defense call as witnesses? Um who would you be afraid would be called as a witness? Uh, and <laughs> right? And so I mean I just think that it's an opportunity anytime there's a high profile case and certainly the impeachment of a president is a very high profile case. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on what it would be like to be under that kind of scrutiny. What role we might play, how we might behave, we might look at a testimony like Mitt Romney's and say, "Wow, that moral courage is the kind I would like to be able to show." Agree with them or not, I'd like to be able to say I'm a person who's passionate about my faith that guides my decision making, and one day I'm going to stand before God and he, and I'm going to be judged. And I'm, you know, and so I think that it's just an opportunity for us to consider in our own lives, um, uh, sort of the conversation from a different angle. And so mm. I just thought I would wanted to till that up today that's interesting when we think about divine justice and particularly when we think about divine justice and and we're not thinking about the god who's revealed in scripture right we're thinking about like bad guy gods right so when you're thinking about divine justice we're thinking about sort of bad things when we're thinking about divine justice and we're looking at uh, the God who is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and who we know through Jesus Christ and, and the Holy Spirit. Um, talk about who you know God to be as the divine judge.
2: Yeah, I would say that there, it's changed over the course of my life. I can you know, kind of walk through this relatively quickly, but I would have thought that um, God was mostly a perpetually angry being in the sky that was mostly looking to level uh, a bit of justice upon whoever was breaking his commands and even took a bit of delight in the leveling as it were, it took a bit of delight in the, in the destroying. But in walking through that in my life um, and, and walking through the scriptures since then and, and asking some different kinds of questions, uh, I think there's two things that uh, when you see within the biblical pattern, God's justice being sort of levied against creation, it happens in one of two forms typically. One is uh, after a long process of wooing people who continue to turn their backs or continue to harden their hearts or continue to not hear Jesus's voice as he whispers, after that long period of wooing, God puts a process in place where he just sort of lets go and he, and he stops the wooing. I mean, we see that in Romans 1 where he talks about God giving over. We see it in the pattern of Matthew, how the church is supposed to do discipline. You come and you woo and you come and you confront and come and all but then you eventually let go. And that's God seems to be his primary form of justice in the sense that he just sort of lets go because the behavior continues to be inconsistent with the kingdom. The other thing that we see is that when God's people, and especially when God's leaders, are actively defying God and leading people astray, and just simply will not, as an entire people or as a leadership, uh, will not walk in the ways that are uh, consistent with his kingdom, he does then move as an active agent to take them out. Um, But when he does that, I think we have to be really clear that his justice, uh, when it comes in that form... The word wrath in the biblical text uh, is not the kind of wrath that maybe I sometimes have that's disordered as a father, which is mostly angry and I'm going to show my power kind of thing. It's a wrath in which it's grief mixed with disappointment that is motivating it. And so it's the idea that God will move with this power, but it's moving with this power through tears because he still would desire that none would perish, that all would come to redemption. And so he will move, but when he does that, it's on behalf of the future it's knowing that the future is really in jeopardy unless he takes the current generation out so that it creates space for the future generation to flourish. And, and so to see a God who's moving that way through through tears of grief and disappointment, um, he is going to be just, but it's not a justice with this over-the-top temper tantrum anger. It's, it's a justice that is moved by something else. Uh, and I think that's really important to get that picture of
1: God. So I think any times we talk about um, the justice system, we talk about a criminal court, we talk about uh, you know, our enemy, the accuser. Anytime we're having these conversations, I do think it's important for us to have in mind this restorative, redemptive justice of God. Like his yeah. divine justice is demonstrated in a way that, um, that justice itself is actually completely transformed. And I just thought this week it was important for Christians to sort of be reminded of that because I'm not sure that what we saw demonstrated on the national scene. Was an appropriate use of scripture, an appropriate referencing of God in the uh, in the process? It all sounded very punitive, very retributive. Um, it you know, justice is going to roll down. It did not sound like the kind of redemptive or restorative justice that God really makes manifest through His action in Jesus Christ. Richard Roar. Yeah, he's a 76-year-old Franciscan friar. He's an author. Millions of people, millions of people actually follow uh, what he writes and follow his way of thinking. And The New Yorker just did uh, a, a fairly interesting piece, well, a piece I found interesting. Um, and it's, it's entitled Richard Rohr Reorders the Universe. Eliza Griswold is the author. Um, and, and so, you know, let me start by saying I don't think that the author understands christianity very well um its creedal or confessional requirements and so i think that's important to note as we enter into this conversation um and she doesn't seem to have a particularly acute understanding of the role or importance of the church in in what it means to be a christian but it really is a uh a piece about this character richard roar so peter talk with us about your knowledge and experience with this particular guy
2: yeah, so I think I was exposed to some of Rohr's writings, I want to say maybe in the early 2000s, when he was still a relatively obscure, still Franciscan friar, but obscure at that time. But the church in which I was attending, some of the pastoral staff was starting to, sort of, to engage in his writings. And there was two specific writings back in the day that I found terribly helpful. Uh, and one was when he uh, was one of the first to come on the scene with, the, uh, with a book about the Enneagram, Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram is really running roughshod, certainly through a lot of churches and clearly in the next generation these days where it's sort of this ancient tool that uh, helps you understand maybe – perceptions of how God might have wired you. And, and actually, I do find it a very insightful tool, much more so than uh, perhaps a Myers-Briggs test or, or some other personality profile. I think the different numbers of the Enneagram, you sort of find yourself on one of the numbers between one and nine. And, and his descriptions I thought were helpful. And then further descriptions from there, a woman named Paula DRC began to write with him. And, and I found like her sort of female take on all of it was terribly helpful too. But you could see the seedbed in that particular book of maybe where we find him today. And that was that uh, the Enneagram finds its origins in ancient Sufi sort of mystical Islam was kind of the the starting point. And other world religions have used it over the years. And and I think the argument could be made that you can sort of Christianize the, uh, the origin of Enneagram, even though it had come from sort of mystical Islam. The other book that I was reading back at the time, and it actually even, it, it completely shaped my entire PhD dur- journey. I had been accepted at the University of Edinburgh based on trying to understand really extremely conservative religious traditions of Islam and compare them to extremely conservative religious traditions in the United States, the religious right at the time, and how those traditions wield social power. But then I thought, "Eh, I probably don't want to do a bunch of field study among Wahhabi Islam in the middle of Iran in order to get my PhD with a young family, so I better shift that. And I'd been given a book uh, from a pastoral friend of mine before we left called Wild Man's Journey which was also Richard Rohr, Rohr and it was sort of his uh, take, a bit of a foil to Wild at Heart, which was John Eldridge's book that, w- that made such uh, waves back then as well. Yeah. And Richard Rohr was suggesting that instead of men trying to find out if they have what it takes and sort of a lifetime of that, he was writing that men need to engage in the journey of surrender and, and engage in the journey of they need to learn that they don't have what it takes so that they can begin to open their hands and, and move into wisdom. And again, I thought it was incredibly helpful. He wrote a lot about the need for young men to be initiated, and they're not initiated in our culture anymore, and, uh, and it's certainly not initiated in these ways. But again, Carmen, you could see the seedbeds of, I think, where we're going to talk about some things today. He had some chapters in the book that uh, pretty early on were very much embracing homosexuality as an appropriate route moving forward. Um, a really like sort of open, inclusive, almost universalist way of understanding God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. So I found in both of those books, it was really interesting that there was a lot of insight I could take away, but also again, sort of the early origins of what we see now. And I think where we're going to go next on this.
1: Oh, I think that for people who just want uh, a short, a short way of understanding him, I I would call him a modern day mystic.
2: Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah, for sure.
1: So he has enough exposure and experience with the scriptures to use them fairly effectively. Um, he even wrote a book on the hidden things of the scriptures. He is all about uh, finding truth within. He does uh, talk about, in fact, has an entire book on the universal Christ, which if yeah. you if you want to describe him as a universalist, I think that is certainly fair. Um, but I, I would even say that it goes beyond that. He's not just a universalist. Um, He's also just quite openly a syncretist. He has uh, drawn together threads and themes and practices, not only from historic Christianity, but Mm -hmm. from Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Islam, uh, American native cultures, yogic practices. He seems very dismissive of the atonement that is accomplished by Jesus Christ upon the cross uh, I think he considers Jesus interesting, but non-essential to his understanding of, of, of how a person gains access to God. And yet I don't know that God is a, a fully well-defined personage in Rohr's theology. Um, and so I do think that one of the things that I'm seeking to highlight today is he's really dangerous, yeah, but he yeah. doesn't look dangerous and his stuff sounds so, um, so appealing to the itchy ears of our cultural moment.
2: Well, and I think that one of the biggest things that um, and you just described it, and I was referencing in some of those early books, is because there is all this really pretty profound truth and sometimes some really um, well-exegeted exegeti- well scripture passages in some of his writings. And so if you're not careful, if you're not able to sift through those things that are really helpful, those things that, gosh, are not only not new. They're like terribly unhelpful and scary and damaging. It's, it's both of those. I mean, again, my whole PhD was formed by some really helpful ideas on initiation in his book. I changed my whole PhD based on it and it was terribly helpful, but I also was troubled by a lot of what he wrote. And, and I think in terms of some of the newer writings that he has, I remember I met with a a professor really early in my journey that was studying the role of the Holy Spirit around the world. And, he w- and his entire sort of thesis and realm of research was to study how the Holy Spirit was engaging with people, especially in, in non-Christian based societies, non-Western based societies in particular. But his thinking was that the Holy Spirit was working through perhaps even some of the practices of other religions to draw them out of those religions and into the true sort of walk of faith in our Christianity. It wasn't the Holy Spirit syncretizing with those religions. It was the Holy Spirit drawing out of. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of in its most extreme form we see within a lot of Muslim communities now, the stories where the risen Jesus actually comes in a dream or comes just in actuality. And, and you hear stories of people being, then moving away from their Muslim faith to follow Jesus. But what Rohr would suggest is that, yes, God is active. In those world religions, but not to pull them out of the world religions, but because he's going to use those forms, because you just sort of one big cosmic being of love. And all religions on that level then are, are kind of equal at this point. And really where we all need to get to is stop all of the quote artificial divides between Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity. They're all just, you know, he even calls Christianity a shortcut to God, perhaps mm-hmm. compared to the other ones. But basically, all you're dealing with here is we're all going to the same road, which is kind of this cosmic social consciousness of love. And there's some long roads to get there. Islam might be a longer road, but it's the same road, ultimately, that'll intersect with the Christian road. And he's really sort of mashing up the differences between them and creating one big road. It just is a matter of where do you get on that road? Christianity really late in the process is a shortcut or Buddhism and it takes you a while. And it's it's a it's. It's seductively interesting for people who want to pursue other forms of sort of self help and self enlightenment. It's a really seductive thing.
1: So I'm going to ask Nat a question here, yeah. and Nat, um, as as the as the lead into this question, I'm going to read a paragraph from mm-hmm. this article uh, on Richard Rohr reordering the universe. Mm-hmm. Many of Rohr's followers are millennials. And he believes his popularity signifies a deep spiritual hunger on the part of young people who no longer claim affiliation with traditional religion. Yeah. Skip forward a sentence. People aren't simply skeptical anymore, Rohr says, or even openly hostile to the church. They just don't see a relevance. And then that paragraph ends with he attempts to strike a different balance, calling out the flaws in contemporary Christianity while affirming its core tenets. Um, do you see him affirming the core tenets of the Christian faith? or actually rejecting them and does this resonate with you that young people would be attracted to this sort of syncretistic mystical idea versus the the kind of um the kind of faith that's offered specifically in in the Christ of the scriptures
0: reading through the article i think the thing that stuck out to me most though was his it, it to me it looked like universalism right which i feel like fundamentally goes against the the core of Christianity. Although I find that's interesting that, you know, it's quoted that he says he's, it's not heresy universalism or a cheap version of Unitarianism. So he does all this within the bounds of at least saying that he's within you know sort of what the church's, church's teachings are. But to me that feels like a really uncomfortable divide and that that does not really line up with um, sort of the pillars of Christianity. And then looking back to you know, sort of how millennials will take this, I feel like there is definitely a push towards uh, trying to find the relevance of a church and that it's come to a place where it's hard to see where the church, a lot of what you see of the church doesn't feel like it's relevant to um, some of our society today. And part of that, I feel like, is just, you know, mess ups that have happened and sort of a cultural shift. But I can definitely see the draw into Uh, Him sort of providing a different way to uh, still come to a sort of spiritual understanding, yet uh, sort of sidestepping the church in the process. And, you know, obviously giving a more open approach that allows you to, uh, you know, find some more meaning sort of within yourself in choosing sort of what you want to believe. So, I don't know. sounds pretty relevant.
1: So, First of all, I agree with everything that you, um, that you just said and laid out. Peter, um, if a Christian by creedal confessional historic definition, um, were to really evaluate Rohr's teachings, would they view him as Christian? And let me ask the same question about a creedal confessional Buddhist, a creedal confessional, uh, practitioner of Hindu. Uh, a creedal confessional pract- practitioner of Islam, uh, would, I mean, he is t- he is saying, I can have them all and I can mush them all together or fine. Would any practitioner of any of the various streams of faith from which he is drawing acknowledge that he is authentically any of those?
2: Yeah, see, Carmen, I think you hit on a really key point there because I think we're troubled, of course, by the representation of Christianity. But what you just said is that to the extent he talks about some of those other world religions? And if I was a practitioner for or an advocate for Buddhism or Hil- Hinduism or Islam, and you're telling me that it is, it's just sort of this mashed up, all roads lead to the same place. I probably wouldn't be terribly on board with Roar either if I was a practicing Buddhist or a practicing uh, person of the Islamic faith because he doesn't rep- that. That's not what is represented in those faiths either. Maybe you could argue that Buddhism sort of leads to this cosmic oneness uh, idea but it's it's not of this earth it's sort of this immaterial realm where we all get kind of caught up together in one consciousness and and there's some of that in hinduism as well but i think the thing that you have to do with christianity from a creedal standpoint in order to get the place uh, where roar is you have to sort of reimagine why jesus what he did uh, did what he did on the cross and and i hear some other writings people that are in the same kind of uh, lanes, writing in those same sorts of ways in which Rory is. And what they do with Jesus is instead of interpreting that somehow he not only took on the sins of the world, but he broke the power of that sin, salvation, meaning that he rescued from the power of sin and, and starts the process of healing and restoration and all of that. In the empty tomb, he was sort of the first fruits of that rescuing and restoration, that you have to reimagine that central doctrine to Christianity to be that Jesus simply was providing us a model of what we should do in our own lives to help bring about sort of a messianic era on earth. We have to be willing to surrender like Jesus did in the garden. And of course, that's true in the Christian faith. But the reason why he surrendered in the garden is because he was going to walk out something that only he could do, and that was to break the power of sin. He wasn't doing that to show us how we can live a better life, how we can... uh, we come to a greater consciousness about ourselves because then the the point of the tomb according to somebody like Rohr is it would probably even be doubtful if the tomb if, if Jesus was actually literally raised but the story of his raising is the same story we can start sharing that when we live sort of that Franciscan friar kind of life when we surrender when we open our hands when we untether ourselves from the things of this world, we're sort of raised into a new kind of life as a result. And if all of us, men and women all around the earth, were willing to do that, we really could usher in sort of this, in in his mind, the second coming of Jesus would very much be a Jesus spirit that would pervade not just Jesus the man 2,000 years ago, but it would be the Jesus spirit that would include all human beings all around the world, all getting there through a variety of religious traditions. But that is how you have to reimagine what Jesus did, is he was giving us a, re- a very um, graphic shortcut about how we get there as human beings. He wasn't actually com- accomplishing anything on a cosmic level.
1: If people want to research this list a little bit, I mean, all you have to do is Google like uh, the name Richard Rohr and the word Christmas or the name or the word Easter um, or the word resurrection Um, because these give you opportunities to expose yourself to his, you know, his specific teachings on these specific subjects. And it will not be hard to see, um, his radical departure from what is historically and, and understood today to actually, uh, constitute the corpus, the body of what it means to be a Christian and the Christian faith. He is outside of that understanding. Uh, and yet he is regarded by some as a Christian and certainly followed by millions as uh, as a mystical teacher. And so I thought that maybe we'd spend a couple of minutes here at the close today, guys, talking about how do we discern the difference? How do you discern, um, you know, you got somebody, he's got a big hat. I mean, in terms of like a title, he's a Franciscan friar. I don't really know what that means, but, you know, it's a title and he's got a monk's outfit on and he's got some property and millions of people buy his books, so he must be worthy of listening to on these subjects. And, Peter, as you have noted, not everything that he says is wrong, but yeah. much of what he says leads to a path of destruction. So how do we discern? Talk talk with us about spiritual discernment in terms of who we follow and and how far we follow them.
2: Yeah, if I could give some really quick uh, tips or principles on this is that I would um, be both open and skeptical all at the same time whenever you read anybody who's representing the kingdom. And that would include myself in my teaching. It's how I tell my kids in the class, be open but skeptical because any person, male or female, is not going gonna, gonna to be missing stuff. And so, but, but you don't want to throw out the baby at the bathwater. So what can, you know, the, the process of discernment then is to like, just sort of take things on board pause, and then start doing your work around it. Talk with trusted people about it. Uh, Get into the scriptures yourself. Read some of the church tradition as well. But before you would adopt anything related to God's kingdom, I would definitely, if it's being represented by somebody on a blog or a TED Talk or whatever, even a pastor on a weekend, I would definitely hold that tension of being really open and healthily skeptical at the same time until you get a chance to walk these things out with a lot of other people, but to just adopt Roar's stuff because he has this compelling way of life um, is maybe to miss what discernment really could be, uh, be about.
1: How do you decide Nat? You have any, you have any unmovable standard against which to test whether or not somebody is telling you the truth.
0: I feel like it's difficult this young in my life because I don't, there's a lot I don't know. And so, um, you know, it, it has to do with me trying to uh, look at everything and how it corresponds to, you know, the core biblical teachings, right? And so if I can find it in the Bible, I feel like that's sort of like my safe pillar to build it on. The struggle- See, I saw Carmen <laughs>
2: lifting up the Bible, and, and I agree. And, and the thing where I would suggest is that, um, Roar would be claiming to interpret the Bible, so that's part of it too, right? I mean, it does have to stay consistent with the scriptures, but we have to consider the messenger of the scriptures at times as well, too. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up the self-evident point, uh, Nat, because uh, on camera that was maybe the biggest Bible I've ever seen on camera. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I guess the hard thing is it's a big book, and I've only had a couple years to like properly study it, right? So like, yeah. I don't, I don't know everything like and so it just it's difficult and for everything that comes up it really takes a lot of time to research it and try and figure it out and and it's hard but you know just always coming back to what is foundationally written in the bible as sort of the pillar point to check things yeah wrap us up carmen how would you answer it
1: well that actually circled us all the way back around to where you started us um which was sola scriptura so i really appreciate the way that god worked all of that together um (laughs) And, uh, there are, we do have these experiences, but experiences are not primary in terms of our teacher today. What is primary for the Christian is I want my life to be brought into ever greater conformity with who Christ is. And that's not just some amorphous spirit. That is the reality of, uh, of Jesus Christ, the, the co-eternal second member of the Trinity currently seated at the right hand of the Father, but coming again. To judge the living and the dead. And so circling back around again to our sort of courtroom motif, we are witnesses. That is our role and responsibility in the world today in terms of what God has revealed about himself and what God has revealed about his kingdom, which in fact is coming. To bring the principles of the kingdom of God to bear in the midst of the kingdoms of this world is really our role and responsibility today as Christians. And so even as we consider these you know, mystical questions of how we draw nigh unto God, we also have to recognize it's not all about us getting into just a little holy space with God and having some sort of mystical experience. It's about us being deployed into the world that he so loves to actually advance his kingdom agenda. Thanks for joining us today on The Till. We'll be back next week.